You are listening to Under This Light, a revelation of Shakespeare and self, brought to you by Seattle Shakespeare Company. I'm your host, Lamar Legend, and today we have scenic and costume designer extraordinaire, Carrie Wong. Carrie, you're no stranger to classical storytelling, as for over 40 years, you've designed sets and costumes for a slew of opera companies that stretch across every region of the U.S., as well as Macau, Beijing, and Spain. Your creations have appeared on PBS's great performances, the Prague Quadrennial, for which you won a gold medal, and your work was exhibited in the Performing Arts Library at New York's Lincoln Center. I went to high school right across the street from there, and I've also gone to the the Prague Quadrennial. It's a it's an amazing um, festival. Um, at Yale College, you graduated summa cum laude and later attended the Yale School of Drama. Since then, you've maintained a career in academia as a professor at University of Puget Sound, Seattle University, the University of Washington. You've written for publications such as Live Design and featured in Stage of the Art and American Theater Magazine, and you're an NEA grant recipient. Wow. Carrie, it's so good to have you. Oh, thanks for asking me to be here. You obviously did a lot of research. <laughs> <laughs> that is my job. That oh is my, my gosh. Job. <laughs> I've forgotten a lot about that stuff. But yeah, it all happened. <laughs> I love that. It, yes, all of that happened. <laughs> I love that because it's the most factual and at the same time, humble way of admitting um, your achievements. It's like, yes, that ha- that is a fact. <laughs> um so let's just start from your beginnings. How did your relationship to theater begin, theater and the arts? Well, it's funny. When I was growing up um, in Portland, Oregon, um, I developed this fascination with little toy theaters and things like that. And my grandfather built me a little um, toy stage that was about three feet wide by you know a foot and a half tall. And I would kind of design these little spectacles that I would kind of force my family to watch. Um, And they were more like little scenes of things. There wasn't much dramatic action, but I really enjoyed working on um, just creating, you know, kind of little stage sets and things like that. And as I was growing up, you know, when I was in grade school, uh, my mom took me to a lot of community theater in Portland and... I found myself being slightly um, disappointed by what I was seeing on stage, not because the acting or the directing was bad or things like that, but because the physical environments that I was looking at, I thought, detracted from the storytelling. Hmm. And I kind of kept thinking to myself, oh, I think I think this should look like this, or I think that I think I could do better with this. So that kind of started my interest in stage design. But... Um, you know, when I went to school, I I went to school to be a mathematician. I was really good at math in grade school and high school. And that's what I went to college for. I wanted to be a theoretical mathematician. And in, as an undergraduate, I soon realized that there were people who were far more talented in that field than I. And so I left mathematics and started to look around and see Um, what other fields of interest were interesting to me. And at the time, uh, Yale uh, was on a pass-fail system. It didn't have grades, really. So it allowed, I think, all of us as students to to just 
kind of explore things and without the worry of being so grade conscious or, mm-hmm. you know, kind of grade point average conscious. And so I kind of dabbled in um, English literature and photography, filmmaking, um, psychology, just kind of looking around at what I was interested in. And I thought maybe that I might at one point become an English teacher. Um, uh, but as I got more and more into English literature, I just felt that I wanted to do something more practical. And so I became interested in stage design and what stage design looked like for the Renaissance um, audiences um, at court or in public. And uh, that led to an interest in um, stage design. And uh, in my fourth year as an undergraduate, I was in a program called Scholars of the House, which allowed you to do a full year of independent study instead of taking classes. And so I decided to reconstruct a a Stuart Court mask uh, for the court of James I that was written by Ben Jonson called News in the New World Discovered in the Moon. And mm-hmm. it had original designs by Inigo Jones, who was a very well-known um, ar- English architect at the time. And he was also known for bringing um, Italian Baroque stagecraft to, to England. Um, and, and so... Uh, that launched me on a year of doing research um, and going to England and looking at Inigo Jones's designs at the National Portrait Gallery um, and kind of coercing or enticing um, people in the college and at the university to kind of get involved in um, producing this piece um, as an actual performed work. And so I got um, people to... Um, sing and to dance and to uh, act as well as musicians and uh, uh, choreographers and kind of everybody that I needed. And my my job was to produce, direct and design the whole thing. And Mm. um, it was kind of a big project. Um, And I got some great help from people like uh, John Mocheri, who was then... um, a university teacher at school, and he agreed to be the conductor. Um, and uh, a woman named Mary Kite, uh, who uh, who later went on to create the show Tin Types, uh, to be the choreographer. And anyway, it got a lot of people involved, and and that kind of spur and and it happened. Um, and it was something that people seemed to really respond to because they had never seen something like a Stuart Court mask, which was essentially a theatrical production that becomes a uh, masquerade party and dance celebration. And this was, because it was for the court of James I, um, it was designed to be um, a tribute to him and to... Um, People who go to the moon and find that the moon is filled with people who um, who are very um, in awe of the court of James the uh, first. So, it, so it was kind of a palace celebration and things like that, and <laughs> that kind of spurred my interest. And I got a fellowship the year after to go to England and to do more research on Stuart Court masks. And during that year off, I also um, kind of 
tried to figure out what I wanted to do. Did I want to go back to school to go into stage design? Or there was also the opportunity of thinking of going into museum work and, and curatorial studies. Uh, so I applied for both kinds of programs. And um, among the schools that I got into was Yale Drama, Yale School of Drama. And so I went back to Yale and um, was in the, the drama school there for only a year, partly because I just felt that I had very little, if no, background in stage design or drama, really. I um, I had had no studio art courses. I had no, had no classes in drama. Um, it was just an interest of mine, and I felt that I really needed to kind of get more practical experience before going to graduates, continuing at graduate school. So I took a leave of absence and I wrote to a lot of different opera and theater companies around the country hmm. um, and tried to get work as an intern or as an apprentice. And hmm. it turned out that Portland had an opera company and I wasn't a- aware that Portland, my hometown, actually had an opera company until the general director responded to my inquiry and said, I'd be really interested in talking to you. Um, and so I went in and he, I showed him my portfolio and he was interested in what he saw. And he said, I have a proposition to make. I have an opera that's coming up in our next season. Um, Carl, Carl Maria von Weber's, um, yeah, Der Freischutz, which is the first German romantic opera. And he said, um, would you be willing to design scenery and costumes on speculation for it? And I said, sure, it sounds like an interesting project. And so I did. Um, and it turned out that uh, he decided to accept my scenic design. Um, and uh, it was built for that particular production. And um, ba- based on that and my work with him, um, I was able to grant, get a grant from the National Endow- National Music Theater Institute at that point um, to uh, study uh, production management with Portland Opera. And then I became the production manager and resident designer. First I was guest designer and then I became resident designer. And I stayed with the company for eight years. So it was kind of like... I I look at Portland Opera as being kind of my um, substitute grad school experience. Um, We didn't have a lot of money, but we had a lot of imagination and enthusiasm and energy. Mm. And so we were able to create some, I think, some really exciting designs that opera audiences hadn't seen before on the stage of Keller Auditorium. And Keller Auditorium is, you know, kind of the big um, auditorium in downtown Portland. So it was trying to design scenery for a proscenium that was 60 feet wide and 30 feet high. And, you know, so you you kind of had to do big things. (laughs) And in some ways, I think that came in handy for me because, you know, kind of going from opera, which I worked in almost, you know, kind of almost continuously and I would say um, exclusively for the first 10 years of my career um, and then kind of moving into theater uh, where the the stages are smaller and doing things that are very particular and viewed at close close range like at ACT Mm -hmm. um, 
here in Seattle, I mean, you have to suddenly go from big to kind of much more intimate and scaled down, and details really matter. Um, and I think in some ways it was easier for me to go from big to smaller than it is sometimes for designers to go from smaller to bigger. Oh, that makes um, sense. Because I, th- I think one thing that I think we all work on as designers is to get a sense of a big picture. And once we have that big picture, we can kind of scale it to kind of any size that it needs to be. But if you're used to thinking small or small scale, sometimes it, it can be very difficult to figure out how to expand that vision to make it bigger um, without it, without it kind of being noticeable in a way, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I felt fortunate to work in opera for the first 10 years. And I think opera is still the... Um, my preferred medium. I mean, I I would give anything to design more opera, but my career kind of hasn't gone that way. Um, I I find myself doing more theater, um, just regular theater, theater for young audiences, musical theater, mm-hmm. um, some um, design installation for um, art exhibits and historical exhibits, um, and occasionally I still get to do opera, but. Um, in fact, I, I'm doing Seattle Opera's upcoming um, Orpheus and Eurydice. Oh, but it's going to be in a in a smaller venue. It's going to be in the Tagney Jones Hall. Oh, yeah. So it's a venue for about 200 people, and that's yeah. very exciting because the director, um, who is Ecuadorian, uh, Chia Patino. Um, has some very exciting, immersive, environmental ideas for the installation, for the show, for the opera. Mm. Um, and Stephen Stubbs is going to conduct it. And mm. he's a very well-known um, uh, early music um, expert um, and musician from the Seattle area. Mm-hmm. So I think I think it could be a really exciting production, but I'm so glad to kind of be doing op a little bit of opera again yeah um, what is it about opera specifically i mean i just worked with seattle um seattle opera directing for them and it was one a wonderful relationship and their spaces are so are so vast and so beautiful and 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 they really allow you the freedom to go big <laughs> you know and and what i love about opera is because it's the is that very fact is that you can't not be small you know and when you do go small it's um it's an intentional act so for you as a designer exactly where is your entry point or what where does your love sit i you know i think for me one thing that opera allows and i would say musical theater allows it as well um is just that when you add music when you add singing when you add dancing it suddenly expands the emotional expressiveness of the story in a way. Um, and that carries over into the visual medium as well, that designs can suddenly kind of come to life or bl- blossom in a larger way than they might not be able to do um, on a stage for a play, for example. I mean, I think that... I think that if you, I think sometimes for plays, and I'm generalizing here a great deal, but I think a lot of plays 
um, even contemporary plays, they are often very site specific. Um, and even if they move from place to place to place, they're very site specific and they a lot of times don't allow you the kind of grand gesture, the visual expansion, the, mm. um, the exuberance, mm. uh, the spectacle mm-hmm. uh, that m- the addition of music allows you. Um, and so in musical theater or in operas, you have the capability of doing something very big, something very lavish, something very conceptual mm-hmm. uh, that might seem to be a little bit overblown or a little bit um, too intellectual, perhaps, mm-hmm. for a, a dramatic piece. But mm-hmm. in opera, it somehow works just fine. <laughs> and I think opera audiences go to performances. Of course, they go to performances to hear the musical aspect of the piece being presented. But there's an expectation, I think, on mm-hmm. their part that they're going to see something that... Um, mm-hmm. perhaps they can't see any place else, mm-hmm. that it's either going to be bigger or it's going to be uh, a very different and unique viewpoint about a particular piece mm. um, that they may have seen many, many times before. And it's that familiarity with the repertoire mm-hmm. in opera that al- allows opera directors, I think, to play with the storytelling, to play with the motivations of characters, to play with time and place. Mm. Um, and in, in, the predic- in the production of Orpheus and Eurydice, for example, that I'm working on, the director has some very specific ideas about the motivation of Orpheus and Eurydice, she has a very specific idea of how the piece should end, um, how the piece should be edited so that there is a perhaps contemporary um, view of the relationship between Orpheus and Eurydice. Hmm. Um, And I think all of these things make it an interesting interpretation that uh, audiences are going to experience uh, when the piece is presented in January. Um, and and that, that doesn't mean that that's the, the only uh, interpretation that is um, valid for this piece. I mean, other directors and other production teams could choose to produce this work in any of a number of different ways. Mm -hmm. But that's, I think, the great thing about working in opera is that you have, at least for these um, standard pieces of the repertoire or historical pieces, you have a way, you have a way into re- evaluating these pieces, reviewing these pieces, looking anew at these pieces uh, to create new interpretations of the piece if you want to do that. Slightly moving moving in another direction now and talking specifically about theater, um, you have an interesting path, journey with Shakespeare. Uh, you've directed tons of Shakespeare, especially for In Tacoma. So let's let's go back and talk about you know, your relationship to Shakespeare and and how that began and then your work and how your work grew from that. Right. Well, 
you know, to, there was a really wonderful small equity theater company in Tacoma called Tacoma Actors Guild, which existed for quite a while um, in that city. It was founded by uh, two university professors, uh, William Beckvar from Pacific Lutheran University and um, Rick Tudor, who was, uh, I think, at the University of Puget Sound. And um, they first performed in an old, um, I think it was an old, possibly church building or um, school. Um, and then later on um, had uh, moved to a new site called Theater on the Square, uh, which is part of the Pantages complex in downtown Tacoma. And <clears throat> when Bill Beckvar retired, um, a new artistic director named Bruce Seavey came on the scene and he was interested in doing a lot of different things. And one of the things that he initiated towards the end of his tenure was doing Shakespeare. And so the first Shakespeare play that I worked on was in the mid-90s and it was The Comedy of Errors. And we decided to set it in an unnamed Japanese port city Um around the kind of in the I'd say late 19th century so that the the twins and their servants ended up in this place which was completely foreign to them um, there it was easy to be misunderstood it was easy to be, be mistaken obviously because they were identical twins but it kind of created more chaos both uh, visually and dramatically to the to the piece and it was a wonderful experiment and again a wonderful opportunity to explore Shakespeare because like opera um, can be as opera pieces can be reinterpreted in many different ways Shakespeare's plays can be reinterpreted in many different ways by directors and designers and have been um, and when Bruce left the company, Pat Patton, who had been with the Oregon Shakespeare Festival for many, many years, um, came up to Tacoma and was the artistic director of that of the company for a number of years. And he made sure to include Shakespeare in, I think, every season that he was there. And so um, while Pat was with the company, I got to design, I think, seven more Shakespeare plays, mostly the comedies. Um, we only did one tragedy, Macbeth. Um, but again, um, every show had its own particular visual and dramatic flavor. Um, I remember Mary Wives of Windsor was set in, um, in Britain just after the First World War. Oh, wow. Um, and in a small town square. Um, and uh, the Macbeth that we did looked like uh, the wreckage of, it actually looked like the wreckage of a building um, from 9-11 because we did Macbeth shortly after 9-11 happened. Um, and, oh. and it was taking those kinds of viewpoints to things um, and kind of overlaying them on Shakespeare's plays that um, was so thrilling to work on and so engaging, I think. Mm. And audiences, I 
I think, really love the Shakespeare plays that Pat did every year. The final Shakespeare play that I did, which was in the, I guess, the mid, the mid to like 2006, was um, Two Gentlemen of Verona. And by that time, Pat had left the company and um, uh, uh, Kent Phillips took over the company and he turned two gents into kind of a, um, it was, it was still the play, but we added kind of disco music to it. And it was kind of an updated seventies version. (laughs) Um, And it, it was really fun to work on again, because it was a slightly different viewpoint. Um, from you know a classical treatment of a shakespeare play Mm. so but i haven't worked on shakespeare since then i mean the only show i've done for seattle shakes has been um the importance of being earnest (laughs) Um, and i was gonna do i was gonna do a shakespeare play and then i had to drop out uh just because of family issues um a couple of years later, but, um, but yeah, I haven't done any Shakespeare since 2006. Yeah. Um, but it's still, it's still, a, I mean, a, a part of your, um, your appetite, I assume. Oh, sure. Oh, absolutely. I, I think that, I think that the, the, the great thing about Shakespeare, of course, is that his pieces have a timeless quality to them. They speak to very basic human concerns about love, loyalty, um, um, just a whole variety of emotional and human situations. Um, and, 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 and the characters obviously were written for his day, but they have a universality to them so that uh, you can find equivalents of those characters um, in a lot of different times and places and situations. Mm. So I think that's why um, directors and designers have such great um, joy working in Shakespeare is they're working on works that are, you know, centuries old, but they still speak to audiences today. And they have the capability of being shaped in a way uh, in productions that, that, Um, contemporary audiences can perhaps respond to or relate to more. Um, And I, I think that's the great joy of working in Shakespeare. Your work, of course, um, as I mentioned earlier, um, crosses the globe. And and so I'm curious, you know, as a person of color, have you experienced in working with different companies encountered any difference in the way that you work, in the way that you carry out your work um, in companies in the United States versus companies abroad? Um, that's a good question. Um, the, uh, of course you never, as a person of color, you often don't know what conversations have gone on, um, in your being chosen to work with a group of people or with an organization. Um, I think careers are a really interesting sort of thing because we don't, 
we're we're often not able to choose the work that we do. Our the work is chosen for us, um, and so our um, resumes can end up being filled with things that uh, suggest that we're one kind of person or one kind of designer. When in reality, if we were able to choose our own repertoire of things that we wanted to do, mm. it might be it might look completely different. So, uh, so you know, I'm I I don't really know, uh, you know, kind of what what conversations were were carried on before I was hired to work on various projects, but I've but I find that um, I don't I don't necessarily feel like I'm dealt with as a different kind of entity because I'm a person of color. Mm-hmm. I think the one thing that people have an expectation of me, um, which is probably verifiable, is that I tend to be a high achiever. And so I tend to um, be a little bit obsessive and uh, be a little bit, um, you know, kind of over-prepared, over-organized, over um uh, finished in everything that I present. Um, and, and I think that becomes an expectation of, well, sometimes I feel that people have said, and actually someone has said it to me, you know, oh, you're an overachiever. Oh, you're, you know, kind of an Asian. And we expect that of you. They don't say it in that respect, but they, they, there's kind of that implied, uh, reference. Um, and that's fine, but it, it kind of, puts you in a group, of course. Right. Um, and it, uh, you know. Um, and you're saying that that's more of a caricature of who you are, not necessarily um, tied to your race or ethnicity. Yeah, I would say so. Um, but I don't, I, I, I don't think I've ever faced um, um, directly any sort of, to me, noticeable uh, discrimination or harassment or um, um, kind of unpleasantness uh, because of my race. Mm-hmm. Or mm-hmm. if I have, it's something that um, I've just sublimated, I guess, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I grew up, you know, kind of, I'm much older than, than you are. Um, and, you know, kind of when I was going to school, I was, I was, I became integration for the grade school that I went to and for the high school that I went to. I mean, there were no other people of color um, at the schools that I went to. And so I, you know, kind of, you know, willingly or not, I was, I kind of became the representative for the, the other, other person or the other other people for others um and uh it was it i didn't feel like i was necessarily treated differently but you are aware of the fact that there are not a lot of other yous there um that resemble you um and you kind of wonder about that you kind of wonder well why why is that actually is that is that a choice or is that um whatever and and I, I did go to private schools, so I mean it may well have been a choice for um, for other parents and things like that, but um, but it's it 
it was kind of a strange situation. Um, um, I didn't have difficulties with friends. I mean, um, it wasn't like people, other students were standoffish or anything like that. Um, and by, of course, by the time I got into college, I mean, there were a lot, there was a lot more diversity, um, and certainly diversity at Yale. So, uh, so it was, it was, um, it was just in grade school and high school where it was a little bit strange. Yeah. Um, it usually starts in those formative years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you, uh, of course, at, you know, um, you are uh, a professor, as I mentioned earlier, um, at a couple of different institutions. So I, I should just correct you. I, I'm really not a professor. I <laughs> You were an adjunct. Yeah, I'm a, I, yeah, I'm a, I'm, I'm a, a part time lecturer at the University of Washington. And mm. I was I was an adjunct teacher at um, Seattle University and the University of Puget Sound. Yeah. So but I'm I'm I, I'm pointing out that you you have taught you have taught have what <laughs> you you've taught what you love and are here to do <laughs> yeah. and yeah. um and mentored and molded uh young minds and so um the, the first part to this question is um you know has there been anyone who's inspired you um who was a teacher or a mentor uh that's a good question. You know, I when I was in drama school, Ming Cho Lee was the head of the um, scenic design program at Yale Drama, and um, he was a very inspiring teacher um, and was really good at helping to guide uh, young designers in uh, the direction to develop them. Uh, but. To my mind, the direct, the designers that have inspired have inspired me, um, but were not my teachers. Are a couple of other designers. Um, one designer that I've always hugely admired is Boris Aronson, and he was a designer. Um, he designed the original Little Night Music and Pacific Overtures mm. and. Um, what else did he design? I mean, he goes back to Fiddler on the Roof and wow. um, all kinds of things. And he would, he, oh, he did Follies. Mm. So he did a lot of the Stephen Sondheim, Harold yeah. Prince shows. Oh my goodness. Um, and he, um, he was originally an artist uh, who became a designer. And before uh, the spate of graduate um, theater design programs in America fl- flourished, a lot of scenic designers and costume designers came to their field in many different ways. I mean, they didn't necessarily go to graduate school to get a degree in scenic or costume design, but that they came into the field um, in other ways. And Boris Aronson was one of those people. And he was someone that I just, I, I just found his work so amazingly uh, versatile, that one show didn't look like another show, that every show, even though he had his own artistic stamp, it was not apparent from show to show um, because he so immersed himself in whatever the visual world was and language was of a particular piece and then created what that show should look like. I think he also designed the original production of Cabaret. 
Oh my! If I'm not mistaken, um, so uh, so it it's it was I could be wrong about that, but it it was someone like him that really really inspired me hmm. um, a great deal. And now, to excite your curiosity, and in the spirit of infusing the world with more joy, I present to you some magic questions. I think um, um, I'll start with a soft one first. Uh, so if you could master one skill that you don't already have, what would it be? Gosh, that's a good question. Um, I, you know, I would love to be able to juggle. Mm. I mean, I would love to be able to, you know, throw three or more things in the air and be able to keep them in the air. <laughs> um, and I think that I think that's one thing I'd really like to master. I mean, because it involves a lot of eye-hand coordination, which I'm horrible at. And, uh, um, and, and I think that would be something that, uh, that I would really like to learn how to do. That's lovely. <laughs> I want that for you. <laughs> <laughs> you may see me doing it around Seattle, just trying to do it. Oh, I think uh, that's great. I've, I've tried on a few occasions and, Oy, yes, it is its own thing. Yeah. Um, all right, this one's a little sci-fi based. So we're going to go into the future. And in this future, your health has been maintained and there have been incredibly, incredible advancements in, in medicine so that you are fit as a fiddle and, and hale and hearty. And technology has moved in leaps and bounds, especially teaming up with the arts. And so theaters are now being built for productions in the clouds. And so with every resource made available to you, what production would you like to design for, for this new innovation of a theater in the cloud, um, for its premiere? Well, you know, uh, an opera that I've always wanted to work on, but have never gotten the opportunity to do yet, is Puccini's Turandot. Oh. And it's, you know, it's an opera that's set in Imperial China. Mm. Um, and it it kind of requires some kind of spectacle um, in just the way in which it's designed, because it, 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 just, it just exists in that kind of plain and you know kind of Zeffirelli's production at the Met is still going strong and I can't remember how many decades old it is but it's this kind of study in just absolute opulence and sheer numbers of people on stage and everything like that and I I would love to do try to do a production of Turandot which isn't necessarily the way Zeffirelli did it but to find a different language for spectacle mm. and if you could do it in the air with all kinds of technology I think that could be really incredible I mean I just remember the opening of the Beijing Olympics mm. and what that whole ceremony was like and mm. I was just absolutely flabbergasted by it <laughs> uh, because it was just so beautifully out of control and mm. unexpected and surprising and delightful right um, <laughs> and and I, I would love to try to do something that has this that evokes the same uh, sense of wonder and sense of awe and sense of majesty that that particular um, 
ceremony evoked with Turandot in the clouds. Mm. So that would be my answer, I think. That's a great pick. Uh, I would love to see that. Um, (laughs) That's Turandot is great. Uh, And yeah, those Olympics, the the Beijing Olympics were, I mean, epic, just epic. Yeah. those open the opening and closing ceremony. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the fact that you could choreograph that many people to do those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I just, yeah. I mean, and, the logistics then, of it just for sure. my mind. <laughs> <laughs> for sure, for sure. I would love to sit in at some of those production meetings. Like, what were they like? You yeah. know, and how how long and how many people <laughs> were in the room for them? You know, how were decisions made and yeah. passed? Uh, and then toss in, you know, um, you know, in the actual productions. Um, in those ceremonies, toss in, you know, a Pavarotti performance and then a Katie Lang performance. Right, <laughs> like, right. It was across the board. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. So uh, will you tell us about a dream that you want to fulfill that no one knows about and why? Oh my gosh. This is another tough question. Well, you know, um, <laughs> I've got some easy ones. Okay. Well, I, you know, a lot of people don't know it, but when I was young, I used to be, I used to tap dance and, um, and I was in an exhibition dance group when I was in, this is probably late grade school, early high school. So we went around Portland and did, you know, kind of dance demonstrations and performed in ver- at various civic functions and things like that. Mm. Um, so anyway, um, I, I would love to be able to kind of get my tap dancing chops back up again. And <laughs> I can't even remember what your question was now. A dream that you want to fulfill. Oh, and that's that I want yeah. to fulfill. Yeah. So, yeah, just to be able to kind of tap dance the way I used to and probably better. Um, when I was in, lived in Memphis for a couple of years and worked with the opera company there, um, I took up tap dancing again uh, because we were trying to break the Guinness Book of World Records, world's longest chorus line um, wow. uh, in Memphis. This was in like the 80s. And uh, we thought that we could kind of create a tap dance number that, you know, everybody could do together. Um and it tur- this is a typical Memphis story. Um, but yeah, I made me want to tap dance again. But then the other thing about this story was that um, I don't think anybody had bothered to check if there was actually a category um, for <laughs> that particular thing at the time. And so although we were able to send in numbers about something, there was no official category for it. So there was essentially... No reason to have done it other to, than just to have done it because we were <laughs> never going to get in the Guinness Book of World Records. Oh. <laughs> um, and lastly, uh, when you die, um, because we all will, if pe- people forget everything about you, what's the one thing you want them to remember? I guess, I guess this is something that has come up relatively late in my life, and that is... Um, I've started to work very directly with an organization at called the Portland Chinatown Museum in Portland, Oregon. And they're trying to preserve the history of um, 
Chinese immigrants coming to Portland and their story in that particular community. Mm. And I think the thing that I would want to be remembered for is that I was a part of that endeavor to, um, to help work with that museum and um, do work for them that would um, help to ensure their future. I guess that's what I would want to be remembered for. Um, I mean, it, it's great to have done a lot of stage designs and all of that stuff, but, you know, it's kind of like, I think heritage and history are as important as individual accomplishments in a way. And, uh, and I'm kind of rediscovering my roots uh, at this late stage of my life in a way that, um, in a way that is much more direct and meaningful to me than at any other time in my life. So, um, so that, yeah, that's what I would want to be remembered for. Yeah. Sounds like legacy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you, Carrie. This has been such a treat. It is so good to finally be able to talk to you about your work. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks, Lamar. I mean, it's like, you know, we've worked together on a couple of shows, but of course we never get a chance to talk to each other because you're acting and I'm backstage trying to kind of wrestle with people about (laughs) what things should look like so it's kind of like this was a great opportunity to chat with you and so true just kind of hear about life yeah so thank you for inviting me i really appreciate it thank you for listening to under this light a revelation of shakespeare and self the series is a project of seattle shakespeare company Seattle Shakespeare is located on lands taken from the Duwamish, Stillaguamish, Muckleshoot, Suquamish, and all Coast Salish people. And we pay respect and honor them as this region's original storytellers. If you enjoyed this discussion and would like to learn more about Seattle Shakespeare Company's productions and programs, please visit seattleshakespeare.org. We'd love to hear from you. The music you hear in this episode is provided and composed by Stefan Dorsey. Artwork for our series was created by Marla Bonner. I'm your host and producer, Lamar Legend, and we'll be back in two weeks with another episode. So, subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Give us your hands if we be friends. And Lamar shall restore amends.